because she cut down some bushes? and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Merry Christmas, Audrey. Merry Christmas to you. Season's greetings to you. I I celebrate Christmas. Do you do you not celebrate Christmas? I participate in Christmas. Celebration might be a strong word. Fair, fair. Uh, celebrate the solstice as well. Twenty first of December. Days are getting longer. Excited about that. Past the dead of winter. I do like that. I just in general don't celebrate many things. Celebration is <laughs> is not like a, a a verb. Celebrate is not a verb that I uh, that is easy to me. Mm, okay okay well i i thoroughly celebrate i listen to christmas music starting like december 1st i'm not one of the like day after thanksgiving people but i am like here's the problem here's the problem when you're a kid Mm -hmm. december lasts like four months Mm. it feels like forever Mm -hmm. it just like christmas is like is never here until it's over and as an adult All of the days have bled into one long continuum of suffering (laughs) and there's no delineation of time. And once a year, I'm like, this is different. I'm going to listen to Christmas music. I'm going to listen to Mariah Carey and Wham and Paul McCartney. You know, he makes like half a million dollars every year off that song. So I'm just going to stop you right there because I know that's not the music you listen to. I need you to be honest with our audience because today our child was. Uh, singing about getting crawfish from Araby. Yes, and okay. So That's true. I, I need you to be honest about the fact that while you celebrate Christmas, you have a very specific kind of celebration, and it I is do. Cajun. I okay. Yes, I. So I do listen to all of those songs. I listen to all every single one of those today. But also, mm-hmm. uh, the Benny Grunch and the Bunch. 12 Yats of Christmas is a yes. classic Christmas album from New Orleans. Yes. Uh, it is the 12 Days of Christmas, but all, I, all New Orleans things. Mm-hmm. And our kid now requests it frequently, especially because one of the singers is absolutely plastered during it. And, and our kid thinks it's absolutely hilarious. Yes. Uh, something about like... It's, it's a six-pack of Dixie beer. Yeah, it's a yeah, six-pack yeah. of Dixie beer on the sixth day. But then yeah. over the course of the song, the guy just gets very very drunk and it ends up mangled and it, and yes as a kid i found that hilarious and i'm glad our kid finds that hilarious too driving in the car with them today they were trying to sing and explain this song to me as if i didn't fully understand just the spirit of it from the <laughs> second they started mentioning it yes. yeah you you are um i appreciate the fact that one that our child has one parent who is very good at celebrating my mom is a great Christmas holiday celebrator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lots of my friends are. I think in general, as a general rule, it's not that I dislike the holidays. I just don't. They sneak up on me. They're not mm-hmm. like cause for celebration. I'm not an overly like celebratory person in general. I love gift giving. I love that. I love the shopping and the 
well, not the shopping. I love the finding <laughs> the right gift for everybody. But in terms of holiday spirit, this might be the first year that I've like decorated beyond a Christmas tree. And yeah. it's only because yeah. now we have like a banister to, to do so. And I was able to do it like two months ago. It's great. It's great. And doesn't, don't the twinkly lights help you just feel that holiday spirit? They've become visual white noise. And listen, I really <laughs> appreciate also people who are good at celebrating holidays. So if you are listening to this and you're like, oh, Audrey's saying like, oh, don't celebrate or no, what I'm saying is like, I am just bad at this aspect of creating magic for a child. And I'm very glad you are good at it. And there are lots of people who are good at it and appreciate the spirit. It's like 70 degrees right now in mm -hmm. December. If I close my eyes and woke up tomorrow and I didn't know the exact date, I would feel no holiday spirit. I would just be like, it's Friday. It's true. I remember that tweet. It was like, uh, oh, you're going to tell me what you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. Uh, when you grow up, kid, uh, it's 70 degrees in December. You're not growing up. That's not going to no. happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly right. It's exactly right. So I, uh, for, for all of the ways that I don't live in the moment, when it comes to celebrating holidays, I'm very much in the moment and am routinely surprised by near future events of celebration or like celebratory cause. I'm also not religious, so there's no like ritual or routine around this time of year. Even growing up, we were just like generously Methodist. And so <laughs> there's not like, I don't know, there's not like an Advent event or, you know, Christmas Eve service. It was just like, oh, happy birthday, Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to make your year, Audrey. I will mm -hmm. take you to Christmas Eve midnight mass. And I've you been, will... I've been. Well, no, actually, I've avoided that. I've been with your family <laughs> when they've gone to midnight mass. And I've been like, listen, I don't think I'm allowed in this church <laughs> based my, on my catch what... fire. <laughs> What you and Jesus know about me, I don't think they'll let me in. <laughs> we're 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 gonna make a believer of you after Christmas. It's New Year. It's like a whole season. There's uh the uh feast of the three kings coming up, and then mm -hmm. Epiphany, the the, and then the start of the Mardi Gras season. Hey, mm -hmm. just yeah. saying. Just leave our tree up like traditional New Orleanians. We don't take it, it down until tree. March. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. That's great. That's great. All right. Well, uh, speaking of post-Christmas events, that is a good segue into this week's hero. Uh, I do not follow because I happen to know who this week's hero is, and it is not, it is not a uh, Christmassy episode. You're right. It's not a uh, very obvious Christmas episode, but when I was doing research for this episode, I was was sort of like, okay, who has birthdays around Christmas or New Year's in particular? So I have a sibling who is a New Year's baby, like mm. born on New Year's Day. And I thought, oh, when this comes out, you know, it's going to be Christmas. And then right after that, we're leading right into New Year. Who are some interesting people who might have a story to tell who were born around the New Year? And it turns out this week's hero was born on New Year's Eve. What a segue. What a segue. Professional. It's almost like we've done 95 other episodes just like this. Okay, well then don't leave us in suspense. Who is it? This week's hero is John Denver. 
What do you know about John Denver? I know John Denver's music. Mm-hmm. John Denver's bowl cut. <laughs> John Denver's mm-hmm. voice. When I was when I was first learning to play guitar in high school, I learned a lot of John Denver songs. They are not too complicated on guitar. They're crowd pleasers. And yeah, Sunshine on My Shoulders, the Country Roads Take Me Home classic. Sure. Uh, he's, yeah, he's got an angelic voice. I know very little outside of his music. Interesting you would describe his voice as angelic, but let's get into it. So he was born Henry John Duschendorf Jr. Duschendorf? I'm going to spell this for you because there's a very good chance that I did not pronounce it right. Listen closely. Close your eyes if you need to. Yep. D-U-S-C-H-E-N-D-O-R-F. D-E-U-T-S-C-H-E-N-D-O-R-F. Deutschendorf. Deutschendorf? Deutschendorf? If if it's pronounced like Deutschland, like Germany in German, Deutschendorf is my guess. Okay. So he's born Henry John Deutschendorf Jr., Yikes. Wow. That is not a name built for showbiz. (laughs) We're going to get to that. But before we get to that, let's talk about when he was born. Because as I've alluded to and said explicitly, he was born on December 31st. And he was born December 31st, 1943. And that is the last we will say about that. (laughs) No. What we will say about that is that it is time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. Mr. Capricorn, born on December 31st, their personality is defined by its hardworking, charming, and creative qualities. Like all Capricorns, they show great determination in efforts that they feel to be worthwhile. This quality is paired well with the creativity and enthusiasm that they display in all aspects of their life. They're quite social, and others value their witty and warm personality. A certain brilliance does not shield them from a great deal of instability, though. This can be a drawback to maturation, yet it also provides them with the emotional exhilaration they crave. Ooh, creative emotional exhilaration. I think we're going to find this one is true. Oh. Let's, let's get into it, but you know what? Let's pretend again, like we're going to circle back, forget about it. But people can make a note right here, see if it, see if it rings true as, a, as we go through the episode. Let us see. John, nay, Henry, but John. John was born in Roswell, New Mexico. Spooky. (laughs) (laughs) The home home of uh, alien contact Mm -hmm. with the United States But he was born before then, right? Like he was born in 43, so that's before the aliens? Or before? It's before the crash. Before we knew there were aliens. Well, it's before the crash in Roswell. I feel like we knew there were aliens. Potentially We've been for knowing. A while. Yeah. But We've just been saying. Knowing. Just saying. So he's born in Roswell, New Mexico. His father was an Air Force pilot who later became a major in the Air Force and actually set three speed records in a very specific kind of bomber plane. His family moved around a lot as, as a child. He's a military family that's often required of them. Mm hmm. Unfortunately, he was a very shy kid who struggled to fit in. The moving did not help. His introversion did not help. And so he had very few friendships when he was a child. He was, however, pretty musically inclined from an early age. And when he was 11, his grandma gave him a guitar. 
He also around this time ends up joining the chorus in middle school and choir in high school. He's got a, you know, fairly good voice. He's learning to play guitar. He's still not very social throughout middle or high school, but that doesn't really matter. By the time he's ready to go to college, he gets into Texas Tech. He's got some musical abilities where he's performing at local clubs. The one thing, though, that is sort of a real barrier to his notoriety at the time is his last name. Hmm. Yeah, yes. It's a real marketing challenge, as you could imagine. It doesn't I mean, fit. I literally, as soon as you told me his real name, I was like, that is a name that is hard to put on a marquee. People are like, wait, how do you pronounce that? How do you spell that? How do you Google that? That is exactly right. So one of these club managers was like, yo, dude, you need a different last name. One, I don't know how to spell that. I'm not taking all my letters out there. You got to give it to me easy. I don't have enough letters to put on the sign to spell your name. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So he's at this gig and this manager is like, your last name blows. Pick something else. What do you want it to be? John picks Denver because it's his favorite city in his favorite state of Colorado. I'm going to tell you, as someone who went to college in Colorado, Mm -hmm. here's what I'll say. Way better cities than Denver to put on a marquee. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's Sorry if you live in Denver. I was not there in the 70s. I don't know for sure. But yes, I would imagine even back then, there's all of the little mountain towns. Come on. Like, especially back then, all of the little mountain towns are way cooler. Every single one of my aunts and uncles moved to Colorado in the 70s. It was way cooler to live in like Durango or Gunnison Imagine or Winter John Park. Durango, Telluride. Right? Yes. John Telluride. John Vale, even. Come on. Exactly. exactly. So many options. Denver? Really? Right. Really? Right. So anyway, he kind of picked a lame, lame city. No offense, Denver. Big offense, Denver. You're not the coolest in Colorado. Around this time, he's performing all around the Southwest. Like I said, he's going to school in Texas Tech, but he's in like some folk music groups and they have like very small gigs all around New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, this whole area. Around the age 20, you know, he's a few years into college. He decides, this is not for me. Whatever I was studying, it's not as cool as folk music. So, joins a few more little music groups, no success, goes to New York City. Okay, I gotta say, as somebody who is, like, genuinely into folk music, to say that something isn't as cool as folk music (laughs) feels like a stretch. Okay. with all of the with all of the like love in my heart for folk music, come on, come on, man. But listen, it's the it's the early to mid sixties. We're talking about the the period of like Joan Baez. We're talking about Peter Sing or Pete Singer. We're talking about you know folk music that has a purpose. This like anti war mm. music. This political stance. He's from, you know, small town in Southwest America. He suddenly has a platform. He can play guitar and he gets to be this like political artist. And this was the era of political folk art, political folk music. So throughout the like mid to late sixties, he's performing with a series of trios. He's writing songs. And it's during this time he writes, leaving on a jet plane. He, however, does not become famous for singing it. He wrote it. Yeah. It gets famous right away. 
Oh yeah, it's a woman who like uh, who performs it, right? Close. It's Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. So Peter Paul and Mary record the song. They release it. Boom! Huge hit. It increases John Denver's star power in the music industry basically overnight, right? So he's this folk artist who has a little bit of credibility. He writes this amazing song. It you know charts immediately. Producers hear it. Folk music is all about lyrics. It's all about like the message. And he becomes sort of the it songwriter of the mid to late 60s. He decides at this point, he's, you know, too big for his britches. He leaves these trios behind. He's going to make it as a solo artist. He's not writing music for other people now. He's going to, he's like, I got the chops. I can write the hits. I'm going to get the glory. The thing is, when he goes solo, he's only sort of like moderately successful. He's not a huge commercial hit, but these first few years on his own, he does go on to sort of establish his own brand. And when you think of John Denver, this specific brand, what do you think of? Okay. I think of kind of a mountain hippie vibe, like fringe Mm. jacket, like the suede fringe and uh, Rocky Mountain High. Uh, probably smoking weed. That's that's my okay. like, like Denver, like mountain stoner folk. Oh. That's that's where I would go with that. Wow, that's edgier than most people would describe him. So at the time, people described him as like boyish, hmm. with an almost quote puppy in the window type enthusiasm. <laughs> okay. He's described as being a goody goody. Um, puppy in the window and goody goody are not like great uh, music brands well they are if if what you're trying to do is sell sort of like a folksy like charming easy to get along with no problem sort of fellow you know he sings wholesome songs about i would say simple real world problems so he grows his hair long he wears kind of quirky glasses they're often described as like quote-unquote granny glasses Okay, he, yeah, I see, like, I see that. Like you said, he dresses in distinctly Southwest or Western clothing, lots of fringe, beads, leather. And during this time, this star power that he has starts to rise. And so in the late 60s and early 70s, he ends up releasing a number of solo albums. And each album has a few really successful singles from it. So we've got Take Me Home, Country Road from 1971. We've mm-hmm. got Rocky Mountain High in 1972. We've got Thank God I'm a Country Boy from 1974. I forgot amongst, about that one, yeah. Amongst a bunch of other ones. This sort of goody-goody persona lends itself not just to music, but also at the height of his commercial success, he starts befriending people like Jim Henson. And he is sellable as a... A person the Muppets want to hang out with. Wait, so does he do this, Muppet hangout stuff? A ton of Muppet hangout stuff. So he is no. a frequent early guest on the Muppet show. He performs as an actor on television and in like small roles in movies, but they're all very wholesome. So he's G Golly, John Denver, you know, I don't know, Salt of the Earth, Not Offensive. He even... 
coincidentally ends up having a seasonal Christmas special, which is like the most watched Christmas special for years and years and years. There's like 60 no million way. people who watches Christmas special. How have I never seen one of these? I was like, this is not a Christmassy guy. Apparently he's a Christmassy guy. <laughs> yeah, so I bet you could. Anyway, so he's got all these family-friendly songs. They're simple, like I said. They're sentimental. And he has mass appeal because his music is so inoffensive. His music as a as an art doesn't really take a stand, right? He's not like Lady Gaga out there performing things that are a little bit evocative. He's singing like, man, I'm glad I'm from the country. And everybody who's from the country is like, yes, I am also glad I'm from the country. This is great music. Personally, though, he is a huge political activist. And so he straddles this very strange dichotomy between presenting as this like all-American, gee-golly country boy from the West and also this anti-nuclear weapon crusader. Wait, what? You don't know this? You don't know the anti-nuclear weapon crusader, John Denver? I, I do not. Okay, okay. So in the same way that John Lennon was sort of an anti-nuclear weapon crusader, mm -hmm. imagine if John Lennon put some of that crusading into actual action, like political action, where he was like hanging out with Jimmy Carter and was like, hey, I want to change things. John Denver does that. Okay. 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 Behind the scenes. In public, he has this sugary, sweet persona. And as you can imagine, a 30-something-year-old anti-nuclear weapon crusader isn't really like a sugary sweet sort of person in real life. He just has that persona, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I've learned enough from this podcast to know that if you are playing that role thoroughly enough publicly, uh, it's probably compensating for something. Exactly. He was both beloved by many and hated by many for being what a lot of people called, quote unquote, smarmy. Hmm. When you hear smarmy, like, what do you think? What's your, because that's not a word you use traditionally. Like, when, I think British is what I think. Yeah, first. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, me too. Because it seems like that's a word they would use a lot more frequently than us. I think aristocracy, I think like mm. very proper and like very, um, I think like rich and entitled is what I think of. Okay. So I think if I were to interpret the way that, people call John Denver smarmy, it would be that he has an air of goody-goody about him that everybody knows is pretty fake. Like mm. behind the scenes, everybody knows that John Denver is not the G-golly persona that gets him featured as a frequent guest on The Muppet Show and gets him like a seat at the table with Jimmy Carter. Okay, okay. Like most people in the public arena, depending on the time and place, John Denver's personality changes. As a performer, he's one person. As an activist, he's another. Fair, two distinct skills. But, sure. but you can't always have it both ways. Yes. Yeah, ideally, ideally, you could be uh, consistent, uh, present uh, honest representation of what you value. So I'm going to give you some examples of the a uh, lesser known, not so nice legacy of John Denver, starting now. In an article called, quote, Nice John Denver Has His Activist Side, from an article written in 1986, 
Wait, 86? Like pre-internet 86. days. 86 pre-internet days, post John Denver at his peak days, pre-John Denver's death days. So he's still alive. There's this article from 86. And in this article, John Denver is sitting down with a reporter after a show. He starts venting. This article is sort of rambling all over the place. But it starts with John Denver being super angry, hating the press. And then it sort of dovetails into whatever random political points John Denver wants to make. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you some quotes from it. Okay. So here's how it starts. John Denver says, I have very little respect for the press. It's not only this personal thing with me, but I see it permeates everything that goes on. Ever since the whole thing with Libya, Europe has been suffering because American acts aren't touring there. That's a big part of their economy. And where the suffering is the most intense is England. And they're the ones who stood on our side. They're our partners and we fucked them. Then he turns the conversation to his okay, image. Wait. Can we just pause for a second? Like, we can. The, prob the problem with Libya is, is the fact that the acts aren't touring there. They're not touring in Europe, and that is hurting England. Okay, got it, got it. So mm -hmm. Libya was just like an aside here. It's a roundabout way to get to his point, which is equally as nonsensical as the way that he rounded about to get there. Okay, okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, just but he's sure angry. I'm... Yeah, I can tell, I can tell. Mm -hmm. So then he's like, he keeps ranting about how, you know, like the press says some things about how in Libya... There's terrorism, so people then don't go to Europe, and England is really suffering. Although I feel like it should be pointed out that England is very much like, we're not the same as Europe, but whatever. Yeah, and can I also say, Libya is not in Europe? Mm-mm. So, no. like, yes. I'm, I'm just, like, struggling to figure out how the coverage of the an African country is affecting the European touring. You and me both, baby. Uh, okay. But okay. <laughs> it gets a little sure. weirder from there. So this is this is like him ranting at, at a reporter. So then he starts talking about how the press, he circles, he loops back to the fact that he has no respect for the press. And he's upset that the press has portrayed him as this goody-goody. And he says, the media chose to present me that way. They bought a certain kind of thing by which they judged me and criticized my concerts and my music. So we've closed the loop there, I guess. Uh, yeah, apparently. So uh, I think he thinks he's using his platform for a cause he cares about. And to be fair, in a lot of ways, he was using his platform more than a lot of other artists in meaningful ways. Throughout the 70s, he ends up eventually somehow founding some organizations focused on anti-hunger work. He's on a number of poverty commissions or anti-poverty commissions, I guess. And then, most famously, he takes a stand as one of the first, like, environmentalists. All good causes. Yeah. But this is Meet Your Heroes. So you know that John Denver, despite these good causes, we've already seen little hints of it, little glimpses, is not without his own complications, if you will. And these complications, surprise, surprise, come in the form of incredible hypocrisy. You don't say. Would you like some examples? Please. All right. Environmentalism. He's like, I'm John Denver. Save the planet. The environment. I don't know. Stop drilling. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. He writes lines in his songs like, 
They tried to tear the mountain down to bring in a couple more, more people, more scars upon the land. He's writing lines like this mm-hmm. while also building a huge estate on previously undeveloped mountainside land in Colorado. <laughs> yes. Tearing scars into those same fucking mountains. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, as long as it's, you know, my scars in the land, that's fine. Sure. Yeah. At the same time on this property, he also ends up building an underground gas tank and hoarding Mm -hmm. something like 4,000 gallons of gasoline. Oh, wow. So he's got, he's like 4,000 gallons of gasoline on his land. And there are some articles where people want to defend this as him like making sure the people who come visit this remote house he's built in the mountainside don't get stuck up there without gas. But like one, how many people are coming to visit you to use 4,000 gallons? I mean, yes. But two, I don't think it's uh, not coincidental that at the same time he's hoarding all of this gasoline, there's a huge energy shortage in the United States. Oh, this is like the gas crisis of the 70s. And so this environmentalist who's driving a Porsche, who's building a house in Aspen, Colorado, suddenly has Mm 4,000 gallons of gasoline and he cares about the fucking environment. Sure. I mean, yeah, yes. And he's he's not just like running his house up. He's like hoarding it for cars to make sure he's got it. (laughs) Yes, yes. To drive his Porsche so his Porsche doesn't run out. Right. As he's driving to and from wherever he's driving in the what is at the time like remote village of Aspen, Colorado. So he's putting all this, you know, work into building his house. He's putting all this work into his career. This is really when he's like peak John Denver. He's getting a bunch of political work done. But behind the scenes, his life is crashing and burning. By the early 80s, his first marriage, which we haven't talked about yet, but he got married back in like 67. By, okay. the early mar- by the early 80s, his first marriage to a woman named Annie is falling apart. And that's like a capital F falling apart. Mm. And this is happening probably because for their entire marriage, starting literally weeks after they get married, John is fucking around. Oh, weeks. Yeah, weeks. He says he was like lonely. Okay. Take your wife on tour. I don't know what to tell you, man. (laughs) But within weeks of getting married, he's fucking around. Mm -hmm. It takes like 15 years before Annie files for divorce. Not to say she didn't know before then, but, you know, a decade and a half in, she is over it. He is not this nice guy everyone thinks he is. He's sleeping Mm -hmm. around on her. And he's starting to develop a serious drug and alcohol dependency. So she files for divorce. He says, oh, it's because my work schedule, you know, keeps us apart. And she says, actually, no, it's because for 15 years you've been cheating on me. You've been verbally abusive. And also you have engaged multiple times in domestic assault. At the time, he's like, no, I didn't. I didn't. But then a few years later in his autobiography, he confesses Mm -hmm. to like one really big incident. but. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the scope of this incident, and you tell me if you think this is a first-time offender. Okay. They get separated. Annie leaves. 
but they're living like on the same property-ish somehow. John's away and he's like, I'm going to clear some of these shrubs from our backyard. You know, like these are taking over our land or whatever. She has some of these trees and bushes cut down. Okay. John comes back. There's Mm -hmm. no evidence that she did this maliciously, but John comes back and this sends him into a rage. Wait, and according what? to, yes, according to his own bio- autobiography. Like the most generous account he could muster on his own behalf. This is what he says he does. He, quote, barged into their house one morning, threw her on a kitchen table, table and choked her for cutting down some scrub oaks in the backyard. Then he cut up the house with a chainsaw, including their kitchen table, their marriage bed, cutting it all in half. The fuck? And he says, Quote, I had almost lost control, but I didn't. No, you've lost (laughs) control, sir. I'm sorry to tell you, the second you start a chainsaw in your home, you have crossed the loss control threshold. Right, right. Wait, okay, and this is over. He's fucking around for like however long, and he's choking her and running a chainsaw through their furniture because she cut down some bushes? Yes, yes. But he he didn't lose control. I mean, come on. He said he almost did, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. I'm glad. Okay, let's be clear. Just PSA, chainsaw control is very important. If you're running Mm -hmm. a chainsaw, being in control Mm -hmm. of it at all times is important. Yes. That is a different thing than the control it takes to avoid running a chainsaw in your home. And if you're running one in your home, you have lost the most important type of control. Exactly. Exactly. It's like trigger control. To be like, I did not lose trigger control. Sir, you shot the gun eight times in your house. That is a different (laughs) type of losing control. Doesn't matter if you intended to, you've lost it. So this, okay. So he he is sitting here playing the environmentalist goody boy card and also like hoarding gasoline for his Porsche and uh, terrorizing his wife by cutting up their home with the chainsaw over bushes. Yeah, and if the true crime enthusiast in me has anything to say about this, is that this is not where you start. You don't start by choking someone on the kitchen table and starting a chainsaw. You escalate. That's an escalation. They've been, they've been other places before that. Yeah, yeah. If she's like, uh, this is... This is- a recurring pattern he's like no just this one time i like took a chainsaw inside the house and cut everything no 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 you did not sir that's bullshit exactly he later goes on to say that marrying annie who was like the mother of two of his children by the way was the worst thing that ever happened to him Mm. i'm sure the kids feel great reading that fuck (laughs) so we start there Uh, I feel like this might be a projection of sort of how he's dealing with life because throughout the 80s, his fame is really tanking. Folk music in general, tanking. Mm -hmm. He's like the pretty boy of folk music, tanking. Mm -hmm. Um, But he does throw himself into some political work and his foundations. He ends up remarrying around this time because someone was like, give me that chainsaw bad boy. I got to have it. Hmm. In like 1984-85, he joins the National Space Institute as a board member. What is the National Space Institute? It's like knockoff uh, NASA? It's part of NASA, but it's, I don't know, it's like a citizen part of it. I don't, I literally don't know what his qualifications are, apart from the fact that like he can fly small planes. Okay. Anyway, he's on the board of this, and he claims publicly to be the person who inspires the Citizens in Space program. Mm, Which is a program that puts 
Krista McAuliffe on the Challenger flight in 1986. Oh, fuck. Good for <laughs> you, John Denver. Yeah, that, don't yeah. put that on your resume, sir. To be fair, he was very angry when Chris McAuliffe got this spot because as a board member, he had lobbied for himself to be the citizen to go into space. No fucking way. Okay, so so yes. just to be clear, okay, so for anybody who was not around at this time, and I was just like barely born, I think, maybe. Uh, you, I, I actually don't think you were... I actually think it might have happened on your birthday because it's a few months before mine. Okay, okay. So so to be clear, what happened is this is not Citizen Space like Bezos and Musk like starting their own rocket companies. This was like in an effort to expand the publicity and the public outreach of the space shuttle program, we are going to put civilians who are not like trained astronauts on the space shuttle and like launch them into space. And Correct. of course, what happens in 86 is there is this huge uh, Challenger disaster on takeoff where they're launching the space shuttle and it just explodes and it's on live TV. So like kids, all the, the person, the civilian they put on was a school teacher. And so yes. the idea was like build up space education, encourage kids to go into STEM careers and like, you know, be interested in being an astronaut. And they put the school teacher on like hundreds of thousands of classrooms across the country are live streaming this space shuttle launch and you see it go up and in real time you watch the space shuttle explode and just disintegrate into pieces um every, everyone died uh, there were no survivors and Immediately. It, yeah and it was just like the one of the it was absolutely the most visible failure other astronauts had died like uh, i think apollo not 11 apollo something like in the 13? early days no, no no 13 survived Nine. but like there was the on the ground fire that happened and killed a bunch of astronauts, but like this was like the most visible like disaster. The yeah. fact that he was like angry about not being on that, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, he's angry up to the point that it explodes. No longer angry after like, that, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, but he's also then not deterred because he really wants to go to space. So then he calls up the Soviet space program and he's like, "Yo, can you hook me up?" And no they're like, actually, way. yes. They're like, yes, what? we actually can. Things start moving forward. And then they call him back and they're like, hey, um, you're absolutely welcome to have a seat on our next flight, but it's going to cost you about $20 million. And he says, no, thank you. Yeah, I can imagine. Didn't one of the Backstreet Boys do this? Lance Bass? No, he was going to. He like trained to be an astronaut. This is sort of this, like the. I don't know, William Shatner, uh, mm -hmm. Michael Strahan paying $30 million to get on Bezos' space yeah, action. Yeah, yeah. This is similar to that. Okay. So the Soviet space program is like, hey, can you give us $20 million? And he was like, no. And then the USSR was like, hey, would you come perform? No, no American has performed here in 10 years. Would you do that for us instead? And John Denver was like, you know what? No one in America gives a shit about my music. I absolutely will. So he is the first American act in 10 years wow. to go to the USSR. He performs 11 shows. And then after Chernobyl, he actually goes back and performs some more shows. Oh, that's dedication. Okay. Yeah. So he's in it. He, he it after like, the fall of the Berlin Wall? Like after the collapse of the Soviet Union? So I think that's in like 86, 88-ish with Reagan, right? Okay. But yeah. sometime around there. But he goes... 
all the sources say like he's performing the USSR in like the okay. Soviet space program. So they're like referencing it as it was at the so time. He, so he's performing before the fall of the, yes. the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay, got it. So he's in what is formerly the Soviet Union, now is Russia, performing. It goes fine or whatever. But he gets back to the United States around this time. His second marriage ends again in a terrible divorce. It's like 1991. Any chainsaws involved this time? No, but what he does say of this wife is, quote, before our short-lived marriage ended in divorce, she managed to make a fool of me from one end of the valley to the other. Oh, come on. I feel like he just, like, is not taking responsibility for the fact that he is probably, like, super abusive and terrible, as evidence has shown. Does not read like a person who's self-aware. No. It doesn't get better from there. Right after this divorce, he gets arrested for his very first DUI. Exactly one year to the date of his first DUI, he then crashes his car into a tree in Aspen and is once again charged with a DUI. Okay. Got a tradition going. Uh, you know, that you gotta, gotta respect the tradition. Yes. This time, though, there's some question. It ends up going to trial because he wants to fight this. There's some question about whether or not he was under the influence of alcohol or cocaine. <laughs> oh, because that's so much better. Yeah. And similar to the Rudolph episode last week, I just want to point out, we're not shitting on the fact that people are drinking or doing drugs. Yeah. And I do want to say, I do, I do feel like the only reason that that is a meaningful distinction is because I feel like, uh, depending on the quantity, cocaine could theoretically make you a better driver. <laughs> yeah, right? Mm. Right? Depending on your body, the amount you're taking. All of yeah. this is to say, he is under the influence of some substance that makes him a danger to the lives of other people. Like if he wants to take a bunch of drugs and crash his own car, independent of risking the lives of other, on his others, last that's his retreat, business. Whatever. Yes. Uh, if but, you are non-consensually hit head on by John Denver, who is high on cocaine and alcohol, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Unfortunately, these episodes of alcohol misuse are sort of like foreshadowing what's about to come in the next few years. He's doing this thing, I don't know, anti-hunger, no poverty, being John Denver, trying to stage a comeback musically. It's not working Crashing out. Crashing cars, trying to get on a space shuttle. Same <laughs> right. old. 1996. For some reason, I don't know why this is here, but the FFA revokes John Denver's pilot's license. And they're basically saying, like, this man cannot abstain from alcohol and he is a risk to people when he is flying a plane. This does not stop John Denver from flying planes. Oh, shit. And That's we bad. know how this is about to end. 1996, they say, don't fly anymore. 1997, John decides to buy sort of a, like a off-market, what's called a quote-unquote experimental plane. It's a plane that someone built on like at home, like an at-home-built plane. So this is like, if you can't legally buy a gun is this like trying to buy a gun that somebody made like at their house from parts that they bought from different parts okay this is a plane an okay. actual airplane made out of styrofoam and some metal what could and a wrong? little bit of fiber class but a, a plane that one man made in his home they're calling it an experimental aircraft and he decides to take this experimental airplane out He's doing a bunch of like touch and go landings. It's like October 1987. Touch and goes, you know, you land, you go back yeah. up, you land, you go back up. And he lands one time. And he's like, all right, I've done enough of these. I'm ready to go out and fly over the, the Monterey Bay in California. Someone on the ground was like, hey, you should probably refuel. 
And John's like, no, I'm not going very far. I'm going to be back in less than an hour. I have this like reserve fuel tank. It's no big deal. I'm just going to take my experimental plane out over Monterey Bay. And again, this is all like back to the fact that he's flying this experimental plane because he couldn't legally fly real planes. Yes. yes okay. Yes. Yes. Because he was a danger to himself and others. Correct. So about 30 minutes into this flight, his plane does a sudden nosedive into the bay, kills him instantly. Boom. Ton of speculation about what could have caused the death. The main one, obviously, being that he did not refuel. (laughs) Sure. I mean, that that is a strong candidate for why your plane crashed. And the reason that this is a major candidate is because this particular experimental plane had a strange... Uh, like second fuel tank mechanism where in order to like uh, cr- like open the second fuel tank, the, the pilot had to unbuckle their seatbelt, turn around and like engage the second fuel tank. But what happened to the very best sort of uh, reconstruction of experts is that he tried to put it on autopilot. It didn't go very well. He unbuckled, turned around to get leverage, he like put his foot down on the ground, but instead oh, of hitting fuck. the ground, he hit the rudder. Immediate nosedive that he could not recover from. Crashed. Dunzo. Also, the plane was made out of styrofoam. So I mean, his body yeah. was badly mangled. They oh, describe it as badly mangled. Despite the fact that everyone knew whose plane it was, who it was, it took them a very long time to identify him because his body was not in a together. plane that went face nose down into the ground into the water yes yes so october 97 it's curtains for john denver following his death and this is what i remember as a child even like up into my 20s there Mm. is this huge resurgence of john denver nostalgia related merchandise Mm. like infomercials in the middle of the night get this john denver box set this dvd cd set yes 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 yes. (laughs) right this is huge John Denver machine after he's dead, pushing his music. Flags in Colorado are flown half staff every whatever October day he dies. His ashes end up being scattered across Rocky Mountains. There's television specials. Like I said, there's box sets, there's trinkets. At one point, people try to rename Pike's Peak after him, but there are so much public backlash being like, no, he actually destroyed a ton of Colorado wilderness. He's not from Colorado. He uh, did a whole bunch of cocaine and crashed a bun- bunch in Aspen. He is not this like wholesome, G-golly Coloradan. So Pikes Peak does not end up being renamed after John Denver, but it's a whole big thing. When I was in school in Colorado, this was a whole big thing. Like, this was a thing. Newspapers. Like, really? Still. Yeah, it was like 10 years after he died. Mm-hmm. People wanted to talk about how can we celebrate John Denver in Colorado, despite the fact that he's like not from there, only lived briefly there, 10, 15 years before he moved to California. He's from, you know, New Mexico. It's just this like very big mythos around him. Rocky Mountain High ends up being named one of the two Colorado State songs in 2007. Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. So good for you, Colorado. <laughs> you do you. But he has a legacy that's bigger than the amount, than his catalog, really. Like the legacy of John Denver is bigger than the amount of work that he actually produced. 
for his hypocritical environmentalism, the domestic abuse, of which we probably only know a very small fraction, the being a chronic philanderer, the DUIs that put others in danger, and his Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality that is public and then, you know, behind the scenes, John Denver is not my hero. For a person who played it as goody two-shoes as he did, the DUIs to be unable to purchase a real plane uh, ending up being his comeuppance is slightly poetic. It feels like an extension of like, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But goddamn, just the fact that like a man could could just write songs as chill as Country Roads and Rocky Mountain High. Every time I hear that song for the rest of my life, I'm going to imagine this dude fucking chopping a bed in half with a chainsaw being like, what did you fucking do to my shrubs? Exactly. That that to me uh, is just like, it's like Rocky Mountain meth is like where it takes (laughs) me instead. I mean, Rocky Mountain High on something other than... Life. Life. Uh, Other other than than sunshine. sunshine. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Well, if our listeners are looking for ways that they can get their own uh, natural highs off of just pure witty banter and our alluring charms in coming into the new year, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.